is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Welcome to Going West, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. We have a very mysterious case. We actually did a poll the other day on our social medias to see what kind of cases you guys like. And there were so many of you that said you like the very mysterious missing persons cases. This isn't exactly a missing persons case, but it is mysterious. I think all in all, it was kind of half and half. It was like half the people like these solved cases and half like unsolved. So really, I mean, we'll just try and try and do both. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're going to keep keep it going how we have been with Going West. I think we have a nice kind of mixture of everything. We prefer the unsolved cases because it kind of gives an opportunity for them to be solved by everybody putting their heads together. Maybe somebody knows something that listens or I mean, who knows? So um, we really like the unsolved cases, but are really interested in what you guys like, and we hope you enjoy this episode. All right, guys, this is episode 124 of Going West, so let's get into it. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests, and there are a ton of episodes that you're going to find interesting. Jordan is super charismatic and well-voiced, so I loved listening to his recent episode with Susan Casey called Unraveling Mysteries in the Ocean's Darkest Depths. It was so creepy and interesting, and he goes across every category with other episodes like Romance Twister, My Mister Once Dated My Sister, or his monthly Skeptical Sunday episodes about controversial topics from crystal healing to cannabis to Ouija boards. There is something for everyone. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations or a search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In 1988, a 23-year-old man from Alaska left for a solo road trip to Washington so he could begin medical school. During the drive, he experienced car trouble, but just five days into his trip, his vehicle would be found engulfed in flames, 1,700 miles from where his journey began. It wasn't long until a body would be found, and witnesses began coming forward stating that they saw a young man picking up a strange hitchhiker around the time of his disappearance. This is the story of Philip Frazier. Philip Frazier was born on January 3, 1965, to parents Shirley and Robert Frazier in Anchorage, Alaska, along with his brothers Will and Robert Jr. Philip's mother Shirley was a doctor in the field of neurology, 
and his father Robert was actually also a doctor but specialized in internal medicine. And although they're both from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, they fell in love with the beautiful landscape of Alaska after many visits and stints in Alaskan hospitals. So they decide to move there and have a family. Wow, all the way across the country. I know, I mean, Alaska is very beautiful. So Philip's parents were both known to be incredibly generous, wonderful, helpful people who had friends from all over. So it's safe to say that Philip had a wonderful childhood by all accounts. And although they were definitely more academic-focused, Philip grew up loving the arts, from music to literature and beyond. And as he went through life, he became a very talented violin player. And this is because he wanted to, because he was passionate about it, not because his parents forced it on him, because they didn't. Philip was known to be an all-around great kid who kind of just danced to the beat of his own drum, but he wanted to go places in life. In 1982, Philip Frazier graduated from West Anchorage High School right there in Anchorage, Alaska. And a few months later, he made the cross-country move to Maryland to begin attending Western Maryland College, which is a private liberal arts college in Westminster, Maryland. This was special because Philip's father, Robert, attended the same college 40 years earlier to study internal medicine. And there, Philip was preparing to study medicine himself, just like his dad did. But after less than a year of studying, Philip decided that he wanted out of Maryland. He missed the life that he had in his home state of Alaska, but also just missed being in the Pacific Northwest in general. So he headed back to Anchorage and started planning his next move. And that's how he landed on the decision to enroll in pre-med at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, which is just about an hour's drive southwest of Seattle. Being the adventurous guy that Philip was, he didn't want to just hop on a plane and go to school. He wanted to make a fun road trip out of it. So on Tuesday, June 14, 1988, 23-year-old Philip Frazier got into his 1983 Volkswagen Jetta and set off for college. Philip's parents were not keen on the idea of him making that drive alone. Because for those of you who aren't sure what this road trip would look like, I'll paint the picture. This would be a 2,300-mile trip, or 3,700 kilometers, that would take 42 hours if he didn't make a single stop. And Philip planned to camp along the way, so he was prepared to travel for multiple days. The drive would take him into the Canadian territory of Yukon, then drive down into the Canadian province of British Columbia, and then right down into Washington, which is the U.S. state directly south of British Columbia, Canada. So Philip would get to see a lot of exciting terrain, and he was very much looking forward to enjoying the wilderness and scenery along the way. For the journey, Philip packed up all of his belongings, including two handguns. Despite the fact that he would be able to protect himself if need be with those handguns, his parents feared of something happening to him on the road because of the rugged terrain that he would pass through. For a good portion of the trip, Philip would be traveling on Alaska Highway 1, which takes you through mountainous valleys with lots of trees and large boulders. So natural accidents happen from time to time, like maybe a big slab of rock or large tree falls into the road and maybe even hits a car. And just knowing Philip was going to be alone on top of that, his parents were just feeling really, really bad about it. I mean, yeah, he's he's a young guy. He's traveling by himself. He's got a lot of ground to cover. And yeah, it's it's not like a, an interstate. It's not like I-5. It's kind of back roads. Yeah, it definitely is. Lots of really small towns you're passing through as well. And actually, just a few months before this road trip, he was driving when a rock hit one of his windows and he had to tape it up and it still hadn't been fixed by the time he left for Washington. Luckily, it being June, the summer weather was pretty much in full swing, so no nasty storms were expected to pass through the area, which I can't even imagine what it would be like to drive that road trip in the snow. So sometime after 11 a.m. on Tuesday, June 14, 1988, Philip set off for his new home in Olympia, Washington. And although he hoped to drive until nightfall, he continuously ran into car trouble, so the trip was proving to be full of mishaps. He hadn't even made it out of Alaska before he decided to stop for the day, which was much earlier than he planned, just outside of a town named Toke, a six-hour drive from where he started. Toke is a very small town, 
and in the late 1980s, there was under 1,000 people living there. It's about a 2-hour and 14-minute drive from the border of Yukon, Canada, and despite it having only a population of around 900 people, Toke is the biggest town for another 7 hours of driving on the route that Philip would be taking. So it's just wilderness and small towns of 100 people or less until you get to Whitehorse, Yukon, Canada, which had about 18,000 people in 1988. So just to give you guys an idea, he was out there. That evening, Philip decided to set up camp and call his parents to update them on his car troubles. Unfortunately, he didn't give them a lot of details on what happened, and really only told them that everything was fine and he would continue his drive in the morning after sleeping at the campsite that he had already set up. But this was the last time Shirley and Robert Fraser would hear from their son Philip ever again. And by the way, Philip had credit cards as well as a checkbook with him, so if something was really wrong with his car and it needed to be repaired, he could make this work. And if for whatever reason it was too expensive to fix, his parents would help him out. And with that said, I don't know why he hadn't gotten his shattered window fixed by then, but his parents have stated that they just wanted him to be safe and were patiently awaiting updates on the status of his car, but those updates never came. Five days later, on Sunday, June 19th, 1988, at around 9 p.m., Philip's black Volkswagen Jetta was found abandoned and set on fire at the Carpool Car Wash in Prince George, British Columbia, Canada, which is a 26-hour drive from Toke, Alaska, his last known whereabouts days prior. The car wash was in a commercial and residential area near 3rd Avenue and Cassiar Street, not too far from downtown. When firefighters arrived at the scene, they extinguished the flames quickly and were pleased to see that no one was inside the vehicle. But not only was there no people inside, there were no belongings whatsoever. Not even documents indicating who the car belonged to, and the car had also been stripped of both of its license plates. Considering all these details, the RCMP, aka the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, did a bit of digging on the car. And the next morning, they used the car's VIN number to find that the car belonged to a young man named Philip Frazier, and that he lived in Anchorage, Alaska. To ensure the vehicle hadn't been stolen, the RCMP reached out to authorities up in Anchorage to see if anything regarding this vehicle had been reported, and nothing had. So based on the route that Philip would have taken to get to Prince George, assuming at this point he got to this destination himself and that his car wasn't stolen, the last four hours of the drive leading into the city of Prince George, which in 1988 had a population of around 70,000 people, was on Highway 16, which is also referred to as the Highway of Tears. Starting with the disappearances of Tracy Clifton and Helen Frost in 1970, and spanning across over 50 years with the most recent murder of Crystal Haynes Chambers in August of 2020, over 40 women, many of which were indigenous women, have gone missing or been murdered along Highway 16 in British Columbia. No murders or disappearances of women were reported in the year of 1988, but it's worth mentioning this so everyone kind of understands how this very rural area can be extremely dangerous, since many have been met with foul play on it. We've discussed a lot of highway disappearances and homicides, so this can really be said about any main long highway. But the road Philip Fraser happened to be traveling on was fairly well known, even back in those days, for foul play. Investigators got involved in Philip's case when they realized that his parents hadn't heard from him in five days, and that he had specifically been on this road trip so he could move to Washington. And they mentioned that he had been having car trouble and they felt strongly that that trip didn't include lighting his own car on fire and vanishing off the face of the earth. Although investigators typically don't get involved in a missing adult person's case immediately, Philip's father Robert stated that there really wasn't any hesitation when it came to Philip's case. Everyone just felt something was wrong right away. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's nothing else that could be said here. For example, since they knew that he was having car trouble... It would be one thing if all of his stuff was inside, the license plates were still on, and maybe it caught on fire from some problem in the car, and then he like went to go get help, but 
there was nothing in the car. There was no license plates and he was nowhere to be found and he didn't report anything himself. So something's wrong. Yeah, exactly. And typically when people want to disappear, they're not going to tell their family members where they're going. So Philip had plans. He had plans to go to college. And the fact that there's no license plates, there's nothing of his in the car Obviously, huge red flags. Exactly. So four investigators with the RCMP immediately jumped on the case and started putting Phillip's face on the news throughout British Columbia and Yukon, hoping for any kind of lead in the case. And the next day, investigators discovered a little clue. A few days earlier, on Friday, June 17, 1988, so three days after Philip had last been heard from, he crossed the border into Canada from Alaska. The Canada Border Services Agency in Beaver Creek, Yukon, which is the town right on the border and just two hours from Toke, seized both of Phillip's firearms and he had to sign an RCMP non-resident firearm declaration. So essentially, he wasn't allowed to bring his firearms from the US into Canada and he had to give them up. This whole process took about an hour and then Philip was on his way. But that was all the RCMP knew. And the clues coming in were extremely few and far between. Not only was it 1988, but again, the area was extremely rural. So it was well known that many people in the area didn't keep up with the media. They just kind of lived off the land. But now at least they knew a little bit more about Philip's timeline. If he had indeed driven to Prince George, BC himself, That means he would have driven 24 hours worth of terrain in just two days, which is a lot of ground covered. That's pretty consistent driving of probably 12 hours a day. So if he got eight or so hours of sleep, that would leave just four hours a day to stop for gas, eat, use the restroom, stretch, set up and tear down his campsites, etc. So he was definitely on the move. And this gives me a lot of questions because he spoke with his parents on the night of Tuesday, June 14th, but then didn't get into Canada until Friday, June 17th, and he didn't speak to them or anyone during that time. We know that Toke is only two hours from the Canadian border, so what was he doing for two and a half days before crossing the Canadian border, and why didn't he update his parents? Philip was obviously an adult, but he was still only 23, so yes, he was independent, and really felt he could take care of himself, but he was also still pretty young and very close with his parents. So I just, I wish we knew a little bit more about his timeline. Yeah, those two days, I'm just curious if maybe he was traveling kind of slow before he got to the Canadian border or, or what the deal was. All investigators could really do at this point was go to every campsite, gas station, and rest stop along Highway 16, looking for any clues that could lead to answers regarding what happened to Philip. Luckily, some tips were coming in that seemed fairly credible, and one of them included information that Philip had been staying at a campsite in Dease Lake, BC, which is a whole 11 hours away from Prince George. Dease Lake was on the route that Philip was believed to have taken, so this seemed like a good place to search. Also, the tipster noted that Philip camped there the night of June 18th, which was the day before his car was found. However, Other tipsters told police that they believe they saw Philip at a campground in Dawson Creek, BC, which is a whole four hours past Prince George, indicating that Philip potentially hitched a ride with someone and maybe just continued camping. And this confused his parents because they really didn't see him going this long without updating them. And this still wouldn't have explained what happened to his car. But there was no way to really confirm if these reports were true because the tipsters who claimed Philip was at a campground in Dawson Creek said they saw him the same night as the other tipsters supposedly saw him, 15 hours in the opposite direction at Deese Lake. To help get some definitive answers, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police began running ads in the newspaper about Philip Frazier, but no concrete answers came in. And regarding him not calling his parents, you know, I don't know what it was like in 1988, But I'm just thinking, you know, obviously no cell phones. And he, after Toke, is just, like we said, a ton of super, super, super small towns. So maybe he couldn't find a place to, you know, use the phone. I don't really know. Yeah, it's possible that there wasn't many pay phones along the way. 
And yeah, you have to keep that in mind. It's 1988. He definitely does not have a cell phone. So he's got to call them from a payphone or somewhere else. And especially, you know, thinking about this, he's also not staying at hotels along the way. He's camping. So he has to go into town to find a payphone. It's not like, oh, hey, I'm staying at this hotel. Let me just call from the hotel phone. Right, and maybe after Toke, maybe he camped out that night, the night that he spoke with his parents, and then maybe he continued on, had car troubles, wasn't near a phone. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah, and the frustrating thing is the conflicting stories from the tipsters. It's like, yeah, they saw him over here, and then they saw him over here. But and those two who's places, right? Or right, sorry. And those those two places are so far apart. They're 15 hours drive apart. Yeah, exactly. So it's always good to have tips coming in, but sometimes they can be this opposite. And then the police are like, I don't know what to believe. So they just have to look into both. Over a month after Philip disappeared, on July 27, 1988, a gruesome discovery was made. About 450 miles, or 700 kilometers, northwest of the area where Philip's car was found in flames, a family of tourists were driving down Highway 37A, which is known as the Glacier Highway, when they decided to pull off into a gravel area. One of the men in the car wanted to take the dog out, and everyone else just kind of stretched and walked around. The dog, who was on a leash, began pulling his owner into some thick shrubbery when it suddenly stumbled upon the dead body of a young man, face down with multiple bullet holes. The family immediately jumped into the car and drove to the nearest town, which was Stewart, British Columbia, about 30 miles west of where they discovered the body. They informed police of what they found, and investigators knew right away that it was most likely 23-year-old Philip Fraser. Two days after the body was discovered, so on Friday, July 29, 1988, officials made a positive identification using dental records, and the body was confirmed to be that of Philip Frazier. As you can probably guess, his cause of death was the multiple gunshot wounds to his body, and they came from a handgun. His body was in an advanced state of decomposition, so the medical examiner determined that he likely died around the time his car was found, which was about six weeks earlier. Now that investigators knew Philip had been murdered, they went full speed ahead on looking for his killer. After releasing more information in the media, investigators headed back to Dees Lake, where Philip was supposedly camped out the night before his car was found on fire. It was then that they stopped into a restaurant and gas station called 40 Mile Flats Cafe, which was just about an hour south of Dees Lake. Detectives spoke to the owner, a woman named Gay Frockledge, and Gay's daughter, Tina, who owned and operated the business alongside her. Gay had called in a few weeks earlier with a tip regarding Philip, and it was an extremely important one. Gay explained to the officers that on Saturday, June 18th, so again, the day before Philip's Volkswagen Jetta was found, Someone driving a dark-colored pickup with a light stripe on the side dropped off a hitchhiker at her gas station. Gay noticed him from inside and immediately got a bad feeling about this guy. She described that there was just something wrong about him and that he gave off kind of a vibe that he had escaped from a mental institution. She was uncomfortable just looking at this guy. It was an intense feeling that she had, so she continued to watch him and informed her daughter Tina. In fact... Gay had planned to leave around that time and let her daughter run the restaurant for the rest of the day, but because of this man being there, she really didn't feel safe leaving Tina alone. Shortly after the hitchhiker arrived, he went inside the restaurant and ordered some food, and then a black Volkswagen Jetta pulled up to the gas station. The young man inside the car got out and began looking for something in his vehicle. It was then that another car pulled up and Tina went outside to pump their gas while her mother Gay stayed inside with the hitchhiker. Tina greeted the young man searching his Volkswagen Jetta, who we now know was Philip Frazier, and Philip returned a hello to her as she walked over to the other customer and began pumping their gas. Then, Tina went back inside to where her mother Gay was, and about that same time, the hitchhiker finished his meal and approached the counter to pay. Both Gay and Tina noticed that he paid in Canadian currency, 
and then he walked outside and approached Philip Frazier. The two spoke for a moment before the hitchhiker walked off and headed south. But just a few moments later, Philip's Jetta pulled up beside the man and they exchanged words again. Then the hitchhiker opened Philip's car door as the car was still in motion. To Gay and Tina, it looked as if the hitchhiker had originally asked Philip for a ride, but Philip said no. And then as the man walked off, maybe Philip felt bad because they both said he seemed like a really nice guy and pulled up behind the hitchhiker again to kind of maybe get some more information and then finally led him into his car. Weirdly enough, both Gay and Tina had a really bad feeling and exchanged thoughts with each other that Philip, of course at this time they didn't know his name, was going to regret giving that man a ride. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
When they say mental health is a journey, they mean it. That's why it's important to prioritize your mental health and wellness every day. When you work on yourself, it brings positive changes in all areas of your life. The long-term effects of therapy can give you the tools to deal with challenges as they arise, strengthen your relationships, and give you a more positive outlook on life. There's no better time to invest in yourself than right now. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. And Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. So instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7, and they'll engage with you daily, five days a week. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com or download the app. Make sure to use the code GOINGWEST to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's GOINGWEST and Talkspace.com. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face. But now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/goingwest. There's no safe like Simply Safe. At this point, investigators felt confident that whoever the hitchhiker was had to be the same person that killed Philip and set his Volkswagen Jetta on fire. They posted and passed out flyers all along Highway 37 and Highway 16 from Lake Dees to Prince George, and they spoke with as many people as they could in that area. The problem was that many of the people stopping at 40 Mile Flats Cafe were travelers, but that didn't stop them from trying. Luckily, a composite sketch was created of the hitchhiker, and investigators found multiple people who could confirm that they had encountered the man matching the hitchhiker's description weeks prior. One witness said that the man told them he was visiting relatives in Toke, Alaska, and then told someone else that he worked for a fish processing plant there. He told someone else that he was a medical student from Toronto and that he had just left a friend's wedding in Whitehorse, which is in Yukon, Canada, and that he was hitchhiking home. He even told others that his name was Philip Frazier, and that he lived in Anchorage, Alaska, and was driving down to Olympia, Washington to go to medical school. 
But everyone described this hitchhiker as a man in his mid-twenties with a large beer belly, rotten teeth, strong, foul body odor, and stubble on his face. He looked a mess, waddled when he walked, and was described as being mentally slow. He also smoked cigarettes and held it like someone typically holds a joint between their thumb and their index finger, and it wasn't obvious whether he was American or Canadian. He was white, stood about 5'9", weighing probably around 225 pounds, and had brown hair and brown eyes. Somehow, we couldn't find a description of Philip Fraser online, but based on the two photos that we have of him, to me, he appears to have like reddish brown hair. He's very thin. He looks like he's probably pretty like a tall, lanky guy, and he has a long, thin nose. He looks like he would also have a neater appearance, whereas the hitchhiker was super messy and had round features. And the reason we're pointing this out is to describe how different they looked. Yet a man fitting the hitchhiker's description stated that his name was Philip Frazier and told Philip's story as if it were his own. So investigators began to think that this man, for whatever reason, was trying to assume Philip's identity. Yeah, pretty much sounds like that. And yeah, it kind of sounds like he acquired all of that information about Philip's life while they were in the car together. Exactly. And we posted, as always, photos of the composite sketch as well as photos of Philip on all our socials and urge you guys to take a look. There's three different composite sketches of the hitchhiker based on what the various witnesses saw, but they do all look extremely similar. So to me, it's like it's it's obviously the same guy. So two months later, another break came in the case. A nice couple from Kitwanga, British Columbia, which is a very tiny village just south of where Philip's body was found, named Pauline and Eddie Olson, had come into close contact with the hitchhiker in question. After Eddie saw the poster with the hitchhiker's composite sketches, he contacted investigators and informed them that on Saturday, June 18, 1988, Eight hours after Philip had picked up the hitchhiker at the 40 Mile Flats Cafe, Eddie and his wife came across a stranded motorist. They had been driving on Highway 37 in British Columbia and weren't too far from their home when they saw him outside a broken down vehicle, a 1983 black Volkswagen Jetta. And to give everyone a better idea of the area in question, I'm gonna do my best to kind of paint this picture. So the 40 Mile Flats Cafe, which closed a few years ago, was located about five hours north of Kitwanga, where this couple lived. And the 40 Mile Flats Cafe is only about three hours north of where Philip's body was found. And eight hours later, the hitchhiker is alone and needing a ride five hours from where Philip originally picked him up. So we can assume that Philip was killed within three or so hours of picking up the hitchhiker, and then the man dumped Philip's body and continued driving down Highway 37 until he eventually came near the town of Kitwanga and found the couple. Because we know that Philip was having car troubles, so obviously I'm assuming those car troubles were passed on to the hitchhiker who stole his car after he killed Philip. So that's why he ended up in Kitwanga where this couple found him. Wow, that's actually really crazy because... Sorry, I know that was really complex. Yeah, no, no. I mean, just breaking it down, the guy, the hitchhiker, stole Philip's car after discarding of Philip's body after he killed him, and then the car broke down, right? Yeah, exactly. So now he he sees this couple, and they're going to help him out because they just think this poor guy's car broke down when, meanwhile, this guy is a monster, and this is not his car. Well, what's really interesting here is that Gay described this hitchhiker as almost looking like he was mentally ill. So I wonder if Eddie and his wife got any of the same type of feelings that Gay and Tina got. We're going to go into that a little bit right now, but it doesn't seem like they did. And I don't know why, because you would assume if Tina and Gay got those feelings from behind a freaking window while he was outside... Those have got to be some pretty strong vibes. So I don't know how Pauline and Eddie would not have felt that, but it doesn't really seem like they did. And and let's talk about that right now. So Eddie noted that the stranded motorist was nervous, but Eddie just figured that it was likely because it was pretty late at night 
and he was alone in a remote area. The Olsen couple towed the Volkswagen Jetta to their house and allowed the man to stay in their basement for the night. Scary as it is, the Olsons kept their guns in the basement and had nearly 15 of them in a case. So the hitchhiker slept beside them. Luckily, nothing bad happened overnight, and the three of them had breakfast together in the kitchen the following morning. The Olsons tried to ask him questions about himself and have some small talk, but the man would barely speak. The only details he really gave was that his parents were physicians in Anchorage, Alaska, and he was starting class in Seattle the next day. Therefore, he was in a bit of a rush to leave. But weirdly enough, he offered to sell his car to the Olsons. Yeah, so it's clear they kind of did get some strange vibes. And now it's like this guy once again is taking Philip's life story. However, he changed Olympia, Washington to Seattle. And you're probably wondering, you know, why would he say that he needs to go to Seattle and then sell his car? So his whole thing was, I'm going to sell you the car cheap if you just, you know, give me enough essentially to get a plane ticket to Seattle. So Eddie Olson decided to just kind of take a look at the vehicle and he went outside with the young hitchhiker and began inspecting it. Everything ultimately seemed fine with the car and Eddie actually was interested in purchasing it especially because the young man was trying to sell it far under market value. But it now being a Sunday, the banks were closed, so Eddie wanted to wait until the following day to buy it through customs since it was a U.S. vehicle. But the young man didn't want to wait. He wanted to sell the car right then and there. So he declined the sale and thanked the Olsons for their hospitality. Hoping to pay them in some way for their help, the hitchhiker pulled out two separate wallets, removed an American $20 bill from one of them, and handed it to Eddie. So we can only assume that was Philip's wallet. Yep, pretty much. But yeah, going back to what you just said, I do, I wish we had some more information because if everybody else described him as having like rotten teeth, a beer belly being really messy and like gross in appearance, and this guy's like, oh yeah, I'm about to go to med school in Seattle, like, You don't fit the bill, dude. What do you mean you're going to med school? Yeah, absolutely. You don't fit the bill. And it's just incredibly strange that, I don't know, the whole selling the car thing, it just really sold me. And then the fact that, you know, he pulls out these two wallets, it's like, all right, man. So, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't weird enough for them to call the police, but they were just kind of like, okay, this guy's kind of weird and he's about to be out of our lives. And overall, they were very, very lucky, I I would say. Oh my god, yes. As we all know by now, Philip had been having car issues during his road trip, but it really only needed a new fan belt, which Eddie helped the hitchhiker get. So with that, at around 9am, the hitchhiker was back on the road in the black Jetta, and they never saw him again. 12 hours later, at around 9pm that same Sunday, the Volkswagen would be found 300 miles away, or nearly 500 kilometers, remember, in Prince George, on fire. The Olsons didn't hear this news or really think anything more about the man that they hosted for one night that early summer, until Eddie saw the poster about Philip Fraser and saw that composite sketch that looked exactly like the man he and his wife had helped. Unfortunately, all police had to go off of was this composite sketch, because no one knew this man's real identity. So they just kept looking into the 500 tips that they received in the first year of the investigation and searched various garbage dumps along Philip's route in hopes of finding his belongings. But to this day, none of them have been found. And he had a lot of stuff with him. He had various cassette tapes, luggage, camping equipment, clothes, his passport, wallet, and much more. All just vanished like the hitchhiker. There are various theories as to who the murderous hitchhiker could be, and many think it's a man named Michael McRae, who was a serial killer active in Canada through the 80s and 90s, killing both men and women. He was arrested in 1998 and is believed to have had 7 to 18 victims, if not more. Although he was born in Ontario, which is on the other side of the country from British Columbia, he murdered people throughout all of Canada, including BC. At the time of Philip's murder, Michael McRae was 23 years old, which is around the age that the hitchhiker was believed to be. 
He doesn't necessarily bear too much of a resemblance to the hitchhiker composites, and his MO was typically stabbing. He also wasn't known to hitchhike, but he did once murder a 17-year-old hitchhiker named Elizabeth Tucker in Nova Scotia. And the, the way that I'm thinking of this is because this man in particular doesn't really look like the composite, Eddie Olson saw the composite and immediately thought of the man that he had met one time, i.e. the hitchhiker. So to me, I'm like, the guy has to look pretty similar to the composite for Eddie to have seen the composite sketch and said, I met that dude. I hosted him at my house one night. So that's kind of what I'm thinking is that I'm thinking the composite sketches are pretty spot on. Right. So basically you're saying that it it probably isn't Michael McRae. Right. I mean, I really don't know. But I'm looking at the MO too and I'm like, okay, Philip was shot. We know he wasn't shot with his own gun because his guns were taken from him at the Canadian border, which means the hitchhiker had a gun on them. And I don't know, just looking at Michael McGray, I'm like, well, he, I don't think he killed anyone with a gun. So yeah, kind of doesn't really fit. Right. And I saw in an online forum that someone mentioned that the hitchhiker composite sketches look a lot like a guy named Roger Hone Brady, who was a man convicted of robbery and murder in the early 90s. And uh, he murdered a 29-year-old police officer named Martin Gans and a woman named Catalina Correa, or Correa, not sure, who was a witness. He, to me, looks very similar to the composite sketches and was about 22 when Philip was murdered. And he killed his victims with a gun, which was a high-powered rifle, so different than the handgun used to kill Philip, but who knows? But he lived in Malibu, California, and the murders occurred in Manhattan Beach, California. But he was caught in Vancouver, Washington. When they ultimately arrested him, he was in Vancouver. Still, I kind of have a feeling that the killer was likely Canadian, but I think it's interesting that no one noticed any specific accent. We do know, however, that he paid in Canadian currency at the 40 Mile Flats Cafe, but he could have easily stolen that money from someone or just had that currency on him because he was traveling through the the country of Canada, so... Yeah, I mean, the problem is we really don't know where this guy's from, but I'm gonna side with you on this one. I think he was probably Canadian as well. So, police have looked into a great deal of theories, including Michael McGray being involved, and they just don't believe that it was him. There are still a lot of details in this case that have not been released because it's unsolved, but we know that there isn't anyone specific that investigators have their minds on as far as a suspect goes. We do know that the hitchhiker told Eddie Olson that he was selling the car cheap because he wanted to buy a plane ticket to Seattle. So investigators wonder if that's where he's from. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that he wanted to get rid of the car because if he had eventually been found with that car, he would have been linked to Philip's murder. Exactly. But, you know, why did he want to go to Seattle? If I mean, that's it is a different country. So you're leaving the country. That means he... He must have a passport on him. That That's an interesting angle, though. Uh, like, why go to Seattle? Like, unless you're just kind of drifting. You don't really know where you're going. You're just kind of running from the law. But I wonder if, I mean, why did he set the car on fire? I mean, probably to destroy any future evidence. But I wonder, like, where did he go after that? Did he hitch a ride from somebody else? Did he go to Seattle? It's There's just so many questions. We really don't know. Well, that's another very scary thought to think about this guy being out there and, uh, you know, hitchhiking with other people and then killing them. Right. So Phillip's remains were cremated and scattered over Otter Lake in Anchorage, Alaska, which was a spot that he and his family loved to visit together. Sadly, in 2014, at the age of 83, Philip's father, Dr. Robert Frazier, passed away not knowing what really happened to his son, Philip. His mother and brothers are still alive today, and they want answers as to why their incredibly bright loved one was met with such a horrible fate. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And next week, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. As interesting of a mystery as this is, this is still someone's tragedy. The family is still alive, and they want answers. So please share this case. Who knows if maybe it lands in the right hands. Um, But as we say, that's why we love covering unsolved cases, because... 
they still have a chance to get solved and there are grieving people out there who just want answers. So thank you so much everybody for listening. Please share this story with your friends and family and just share the show in general. And of course, thank you so much to everybody who has joined our Patreon over the last week. We're gonna give you some shout outs as we always do. Patreon is a place where you can get bonus episodes at patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. The link is in the description of every episode that we release. It seriously is what keeps the show going. So thank you so much to everybody who has supported us over there and to everybody who continues to do so. Yes, and we got to give thanks to you guys. So big thanks going out to Hillary, Shelby, Emily, Pumpkin Spices, Alana, Kristen, and Lilo. Lilo, what a cool name. Thank you so much to Elle, Melanie, Jen, Rachel, Elizabeth, and Megan. And last but not least, thank you so much to Rachel, Francis, Aaron, Zoe, Elizabeth, and Ree. Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate you guys subscribing. Uh, We hope that you guys love the bonus episodes as much as we love creating them for you. Heath has found two very wild bonus episodes. We're so excited to tell you guys about them uh, next week. So stay tuned for that. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, cheerio and don't be a stranger.